Dr. Charlotte Webb is co-founder of Feminist Internet, a non-profit organization that aims to disrupt inequalities in internet products, services, and systems by bringing together feminism, technology development, and creative practice. She is founding director of EVEN, the consultancy arm of Feminist Internet, which provides creative approaches to tech equity for the next generation of business. She is also senior lecturer at the Creative Computing Institute London, where she recently created a master's degree in internet equalities, which explores how power relations are organized, embedded and perpetuated in internet technologies, and how they can be reorganized or challenged through critical creative and activist practice. Many of society's inequalities are encoded in the internet structures, processes and communities. Examples of this is online abuse against women on digital platforms, lack of workforce diversity in the tech sector and biased data collection reinforcing privileges. In 2017, Amnesty International and Element AI surveyed millions of tweets received by 778 journalists and politicians from the UK and the US. Using machine learning to analyse the data, the group extrapolated just how wide-ranging abuse towards women is on Twitter. They found that 1.1 million abusive tweets were sent to the women in the study throughout the year. Abuse towards women of colour, especially black women, was worse. Black women were 84% more likely to be mentioned in abusive tweets related to gender, race and sexuality. And 1 in 10 tweets mentioning black women were abusive or problematic, compared to 1 in 15 for white women. Between March 2020 and February 2021, the Web Foundation brought together some of the world's largest tech platforms, civil society organisations, government representatives and academia to generate evidence, build relationships and engage in constructive dialogue around women's experiences of online gender-based violence and abuse. In this episode, I'll be talking to Charlotte about how her organisation has taken the insights from that consultation and co-created prototypes to address the problem. Charlotte was nominated by the Evening Standard as one of the most influential people in technology and science in London, and she has presented her work internationally, including TEDx Global Women's Forum, Cannes Lions Festival of Creativity and Barbados Internet Governance Forum. So great to have you here, Charlotte. We actually met at a party pre-COVID, imagine. <laughs> when I mentioned the Warrior Women Network, several people said to me, you have to meet Charlotte. And boy, <laughs> were they right. It's been great to have you as a member of the Warrior Women Network. How are you? Oh, thank you so much, Carla. I mean, likewise, I love being part of the network. And um, it's been a real pleasure to meet you as well. I'm well, thank you. I'm really well. Yeah, happy to be here. So back when we met, you just designed a feminist Alexa. Can you tell us more about that project? Yeah, so that project was part of a fellowship that we were awarded through the Creative Computing Institute, which is a really interesting institute as part of the University of the Arts London. And at that time, it was around 2017, 2018, there were rising critiques of the problematic gender stereotyping that was embedded into voice assistants like Siri, Cortana, Alexa, etc. And that critique sort of revolved around two main aspects. One was the way that when you gender stereotype devices in terms of their representation, you potentially reinforce problematic stereotypes that are deeply embedded in society. 
And then the other part of the critique was about the fact that those devices weren't designed to adequately respond to abusive remarks that they would receive, which come in surprisingly, well, perhaps not surprisingly, large quantities. So there was a very well-known report from Quartz magazine that tested how all of the different voice assistants responded when they were called a bitch or a slut. It was found that Siri, when told you're a bitch, said, I'd blush if I could. And this is obviously an incredibly problematic, coy, slightly flirtatious response to a statement that we would not accept or respond to in that way in real life. So there was a really interesting debate arising about these topics. And we wanted to think through what would a feminist Alexa look like? What would it sound like? How could we conceive of that? How can you think about what a feminist conversation design would be? So we designed a series of workshops with students from the University of the Arts London where we could talk them through some feminist approaches to design thinking and um, enable them to imagine and prototype these different kinds of voice assistants that would sort of push back against the, you know, the dominant format that they come in. And I think it's fair to say that got picked up by quite a lot of the media and really established the feminist internet there seems to be a growing conversation about making the internet more equal. Why is it so unequal? I mean, that's a great question. So the internet is in a feedback loop with society. Quite often people, and actually I have been one of these people too, say that the internet is a mirror of society, right? So it reflects back any social injustices that exist within itself. But I actually think it's a bit more dynamic than just being a mirror. You know, we know that systems, especially algorithmic systems, they don't only reproduce or reflect injustices, but they actually can also amplify them. We also know that human behavior can be part of the problem. And we need to think about an unequal internet in a very holistic way that understands it not only as a technological problem, but also as a human problem. Mm. So, you know, the internet's unequal because society's unequal, but it is also because of the sort of unique ways in which the internet can amplify inequalities. So if you think about the case of online abuse, for example, features of the internet like spreadability virality the ability to be anonymous as well as this capacity to create filter bubbles to be always on those things those affordances of the actual infrastructure enable more intense forms of abuse and harassment that we might have seen in an era that was sort of less networked Mm. so I think that's one big part of it and then I think there's two other things Firstly, inequality in the tech sector itself. We know that there's a lack of representation of women, of women of colour, of queer people, LGBTQ plus folks. There's really interesting statistics from the AI Now Institute. They showed that only 18% of authors at major AI conferences were female. More than 80% of AI professors were men. Very few women, only 15% of AI research staff at Facebook and 10% at Google. And these things contribute significantly to the creation of an unequal internet. And again, what does this reflect? It reflects long-term historical inequity between men and women, and of course, members of the LGBTQ plus community. And then the other thing 
is, you know, just the basic question of access to the internet. Women still do have less access to the internet than men globally. And so there you have a very fundamental power imbalance, even in terms of just getting onto onto the network. And, you know, this is a conversation about why it's important to have women in the, you know, intersectional women in the conversations that impact people and planet. And I think what's interesting is from someone who isn't in data or in AI, there again has been a lot of press recently, especially around Google. You'll have to, I don't know the names, but I'm sure you do about the senior female executive who sent a report out across Google about wanting to improve practices to be more to drive more, you know, equality across their work. And there was a huge backlash against that. So what was your response to really about that? Maybe you can give a bit more context to it, because as I say, I've forgotten the names. Yeah. So, I mean, it was Timnit Gebru. There was also another colleague of hers that was also fired around the same time. And that was Margaret Mitchell. What was their role? They were they were like the proper board senior leadership team, right? They were co-leading a team on the ethics of AI and irony. They yeah, d- deep, deep irony. And they had published some work that talked not only about the uh, racial injustices that are embedded into algorithmic systems, but also some of the environmental impacts of um algorithmic systems. And they were fired from the company and, you know, then they experienced a campaign of online, <laughs> you know, they, they sort of get embroiled into an online debate about what, what went on. And I just think that we have to really not only look at technology companies in terms of the numbers of people from different backgrounds that are on the books, but the ways in which company culture supports or doesn't support fair employment conditions does or doesn't suppress people's genuine research you know people are in really difficult compromised positions when they're researchers within big technology companies but their their findings shouldn't be silenced and they certainly shouldn't be fired because they publish truth that may not feel comfortable (laughs) you know with company ceos and stuff so Mm. yeah it was just a really really awful disappointing thing what I'm really excited about having you here today is to talk about you've had a front row seat in probably one of the most amazing I mean I would love to have been a fly on the wall to see what you've been through with your work with the web foundation which is about convening these kinds of tech companies um, and other bodies around to address this problem I know you've been coming up with some really interesting prototypes to address it so we can hear about how you're looking to embed those cultural changes in the sector as part of this group. Before we do that, I just wanted to mention something that I I attended an Instagram live yesterday from an organisation called FemQ. They are talking about something called feminine intelligence. And obviously, we're very aware of IQ and many people are aware of EQ. And what they're talking about is kind of a type of intelligence that we need to heal the world and feminine being something that, you know, exists in in both men and women, not just women. Mm. And she mentioned this story. And I'm one of those people where stories just really stay with me. And I think that's why we've taken this approach in this podcast. And she was talking about being at a conference and she was sat next to a board member at a very well-known company that I won't mention the name of. And um, he said, feminine intelligence, what's this all about then? And she said, well, let me ask you, when you're at work, 
how much of that is about results and strategy um, and tactics and agendas and how much of that is about you being able to care for others and think about society and bring your whole self and he said well none of it's about that she said well when are you able to think about those things when are you able to be in your whole self and this is the founder of FemQ who was talking about this and he said well when I get home and she said and how often are you home with your children he said two hours a day so she said so for what eight hours a day maybe after you've put your children to bed more 12 hours a day you're having to be a non-whole version of yourself and she said yes well feminine intelligence is about the kind of intelligence we need in this world where you can bring your whole self and she said you know, obviously he was profoundly quiet about that because it's you know it's, it's a hard truth and I think when you talk about organizations needing to change their culture we're talking about individuals, humans being able to bring their whole self so that they can look past commercial objectives and start actually saying, what is the right thing to do and to be able to action that? Do you agree with that? I do. I do agree with that. And I believe that transformation does need to start in an inner sense. And I often kind of dream about what would the internet look like if, for example, we applied the Buddhist principle of right speech to social media platforms, those kinds of inner transformations that you go through when you take on certain kinds of practices or start to see the world in a different way could have a huge effect if they were kind of embedded at at scale. But I also think that it's incredibly difficult for people who are in the machine, so to speak, to do that work, to step back. And I think convincing people to change their mindset when they are committed to a profit motive is extremely difficult. And it's not to say that I don't think that feminine energy, feminine wisdom, FemQ's kind of approach are vital. I do think they're vital. I'd love to see how transformative they could be. Even, I don't know whether even the senior folks (laughs) who run the technology companies would engage in that work and then also you have the people who actually have shares in those companies you know the network the power structure that's behind these technology companies doesn't stop at the ceos you've got to look at where the investors are often the ceos are quite powerless in that network as well right and i spoke to a chairman this week who who's a really interesting guy who i would describe as kind of a consciously awake leader Hmm. who is leading this change from the top because it's the right thing to do. And we are seeing a lot of share transformative shareholder power at the moment who mm. are bringing that change of mindset. And it, and it is about that power structure. So I get that. Just going back to your web foundation work, again, you've kind of been on the inside of this, which is so fascinating. So as a reminder, you've been part of a group who've come together to look at these, these problems and consider how... I guess we might sort of build a better world around inclusion on the internet. Can you talk to us about the project? I mean, what does it look to address? What have been some of the solutions that have come out of it? And what has been the experience of being on the inside with these companies? Yeah, so it was a a piece that followed a year-long consultation process that the Web Foundation spearheaded with stakeholders from civil society and the tech sector activists all working to tackle online gender-based violence. 
they took an intersectional approach from the very beginning. So it was a global consultation. It was very much foregrounding the experiences of black women, women of color, people who are, as you mentioned, disproportionately impacted by online abuse which is generally like high profile politicians journalists celebrities is that fair to say we actually focused on publicly visible women right specifically and yes you're right often people who are in high profile positions have very disproportionate experiences of abuse and need sort of specific kinds of measures to um, fight back against it but on the other hand Normal people can become very visible very quickly overnight. If a video goes viral, you can be like a university student to a well-known celebrity overnight and you might be very ill-equipped to deal with the pylons of harassment that you're facing. So it's quite a sort of mutable term. But yes, generally speaking, publicly visible women are at huge risk. So following the consultations, the Web Foundation wanted to work with a design firm. And we actually collaborated with another firm called Craig Walker on this to create some policy and product design workshops where all of these stakeholders could come together to prototype specific product features that would improve the user experience if a woman is experiencing online harassment. So it was very tangible. We wanted to make sure that there would be really, really concrete outcomes. And we focused on two aspects of tackling online abuse. One is reporting and one is curation. Curation kind of comes first because that's about helping people to better manage what they see, when they see it, etc. And then reporting is the phase where if those measures haven't worked and you're still experiencing abuse, that's the recourse that you have. So we brought people together. We took them through a really exciting and kind of tightly designed production process. And they worked in groups to create product features. For example, one group made a a prototype called Calm the Crowd. And this gives users very granular control settings when a spike in abuse is detected. So let's say somebody gets a pylon the platform can detect that and then the person is prompted to check their settings and then things like blocking or muting or restricting accounts can be enabled at a specific time and they can also like create keyword filters etc and then there was quite a common theme around like reporting dashboards because the reporting process at the moment is woefully inadequate so it helped people to be able to kind of track reports see how the platform was responding to reports, kind of accessing a timeline of what was happening um, and being able to sort of access all of the stuff from one single homepage at one time. And these kinds of features are important because the reporting processes fail women and they can feel incredibly distressed and, you know, dissatisfied with platforms when they report something that's clearly abusive the platform doesn't necessarily count it as such and then doesn't really do anything about it Mm. so yeah it was an incredible experience and um, one of the things that underpinned the design process was a set of personas which we were really really careful about writing personas are used in design thinking a lot to try to sort of ground a design in the experience of the person that you're designing for that can be problematic if assumptions are made about those people's experiences but these personas were very very 
carefully researched. So they kind of tried to capture five profiles. So there was a, a black British politician, there was a Tunisian LGBTQ plus activist, there was an Asian American influencer, a Brazilian student and an Indian journalist. And we we kind of crafted scenarios in which they were experiencing abuse based on what we'd heard from the consultations and additional desk research. So everybody's designs were very grounded in that kind of intersectional persona so that we knew that they were coming from a a really realistic perspective. And I think that the sort of solutions that people came up with really reflected that in the end. Oh God, I just, that just literally (laughs) lights me up. (laughs) As you you know, like I'm so passionate about, you know, getting women into these conversations. And I think the fact that when we talk about the lack of diversity in the tech industry and then the way that you've been working is saying, you know, you can still address it, you can start projects in the right way, but you do need someone with a feminist perspective or with a, a feminist focus, let's say, especially at that initial scoping stage and set, and setting kind of the, the direction for it all. What yeah. I'm really interested in is, so there's two things I want to talk about. So the first thing I want to talk about is the social dilemma, which I'm sure you've been asked about loads, the Netflix mm. film that shows all of the people who worked at these companies who designed the like button or the Gmail refresh. And now they apparently come out in this documentary and say, you know, hands up, I've done the wrong thing. I want to change, but I'm I'm restricted by this system. I can't change. And what I'm interested from this project is to know what level were the people in the room from these tech companies? Like, was it manager? Was it board? Was it senior leader? Oh, God, I can't remember the roles of these people. But they, yeah, they were really senior. I mean, they're like multimillionaires. Yeah. I mean, Tristan Harris, God, I can't remember what his role was at Google before he left to set up the Center for Humane Technology. Oh, right, so he's crossed over. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he left ages ago. I think he, he was so he was a design ethicist at Google. Right. Um, I guess that's what my real question was, which was, so a lot of the conversations that we have at Warrior Women, as you know, is that is it better to change the system, try and change the system from within the system? Or can you have more impact when you leave the system, try and come up with a new solution? But then because you've been in the system like Tristan, you sort of know how to speak the language to present it back into the system. So you have this kind of like one foot in one for out you're you're not an outsider but you're not an insider either and it's just interesting to me when you think on the one side we're talking about these senior people at google who are fired for coming up with an ethical approach and then you have people on the outside who are trying to create this ethical approach and it's kind of gaining traction but if it's already been rejected by inside the system like by these people being fired then how do you get it back in? So now you've got these prototypes, now you've got these solutions. How do you sell back in? How do you get engagement from a system that rejects that way of working? Well, I mean, in the case of this particular piece, following the workshops and then following some very, very well-crafted advocacy from the Web Foundation, Twitter, TikTok, Google and Facebook committed to the accompanying commitment framework and committed to testing out these prototypes, seeing what they could implement and being accountable for the kind of changes that we are saying needs need to happen. And that's a big step because that's, you know, not necessarily happened before. So I think there is uh, a way to kind of craft these 
relationships with technology companies. And I think it was really interesting to do it in a way that created a space for a sort of couple of years worth of engagement and then a kind of practical process of making something and then an expectation that there's some accountability for the involvement in the process. But Carla, you know, oh god, even if somebody starts, but Carla, you know, I get worried. <laughs> the thing is, I mean, I like, I am incredibly proud of having been involved in that work, and I'm incredibly Im- proud of engaging with technology companies. I don't reject engagement with them wholesale because I don't necessarily think that's the most useful approach. But I do think it's not enough. They may well commit in a way that they see as beneficial from a marketing perspective. We Mm. don't really know what kind of systemic change it represents. And to be honest with you, even if we had amazing product features for every instance of abuse, it doesn't change the fact that the business model of social media platforms relies on hate speech. So it's about understanding that these kinds of processes and practices you you can read them as really progressive change. You can also read them as sticking plasters for extremely deep-seated fundamental problems. Ah, taking so, a deep breath. Taking yeah. A, I you mean, know, it's, I love that honesty. And I think that's what I was trying to get to because, I mean, just today I saw a comment as well about some other change that was happening at a big FMCG company. And I think we just need to be honest about this stuff, you know, and and I love that you've been on that project and I love that you are, you know, you are a very different kind of leader. So you're, you might say you're in your feminine energy where you're open to saying, I don't take any responsibility for this, not necessarily sticking. I did the best I can, but I'm going to have an honest conversation about it because ultimately what you're holding in your soul is that you do want to see change and you're testing and piloting lots of different ways that you can do that. And I think, The one other thing I wanted to talk about was on the consumer end of that, on the user end of that, during the, I guess, the announcement of Sarah Everard's death, being a feminist myself and following a lot of accounts on Instagram, I saw a lot of of women and organisations involved in equality talking about it. And I saw several accounts that were using the hashtag Sarah Everard taken down by Instagram. Mm. Um, And in the last week, it's happened again around Marcus Rashford. For those who aren't in the UK, as a UK football player, I'm sure people have watched the the Euros and who has done a lot to address child poverty with free school meals Mm. and the racist hate against him. And I think I saw something that said 98% of tweets that related to racial abuse of Marcus Rashford weren't taken down. And yet the next post, which I saw afterwards, was whenever somebody mentions something about COVID, instantly you get a message that says your comment relates to COVID. And there's a link that says, please go to the NHS website and find information about COVID. So as a user, you're saying, how come you can flag anything to do with COVID? You can't flag anything to do with racist abuse to Marcus Rashford. My question to you is, and I hope you feel comfortable answering this because I know a lot of your career is also based on doing this work. So, but is that just because they're still doing the work to find these solutions? You know, they've had people like yourself and your team working on these new processes, or is it just that they're not? <laughs> because actually, like you say, the hate speech is fueling their model. And that's what I instinctively feel. And then I have a huge moral debate with myself about why I'm on these platforms when that absolutely disagrees with how my moral standpoint. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a space of conflict that I sort of 
enter into regularly you know for someone who's one of the co-founders of a group called feminist internet i really don't go on the internet that much anymore (laughs) i hate it sometimes but i love it as well of course um so i think that you're bringing up a really really interesting and very complicated area which is about censorship and content moderation which is the sort of back end of online abuse if you like and but it's it's not just that it's also about the ways in which technology companies structure the flows of information to users globally is very difficult to be able to sort of reverse engineer the algorithms to understand exactly why it is that some content is removed and some content is not removed. Mm. I definitely think it's absolutely vital and work is being done around this, but it's really vital to understand how those content moderation processes work. And Again, there's a sort of lack of cultural sensitivity. There's a lack of nuance. It's a combination of, you know, algorithmic and human moderation, but it's certainly not always effective and it can certainly lead to harms. If you have a toxicity detection filter that mistakenly identifies the word disabled as toxic, think of the harm that that can cause for a disability activist. You know, these problems are potentially incredibly damaging. So I think much more attention and work needs to be amplified around improving content moderation processes and understanding why, to your question, why is it that some content is removed and some isn't? What interests are being served when that clear imbalance is in place? This is not a new problem with like, you know, since search engines emerged, they have structured what information we see according to their needs. We think about search engines being as some sort of neutral, you know, knowledge delivery system. They are not a <laughs> neutral knowledge delivery system. And I think that's where the activism actually becomes really important because I've probably mentioned this before on the podcast, but I always use the example of non-dairy milk. So I remember when people started drinking non-dairy milk, they were like, well, what's the point? You know, it's not going to change anything. And then slowly you see the aisle of non-dairy milk grow and grow and grow. Mm-hmm. And if enough people start saying, I don't want to consume from a platform that delivers this kind of thing, which is why I say it's so confusing about, am I doing more by being there versus not? Am I, you know, almost kind of in marketing terms, like switching, if I switch from this to mm. something else, then is that more effective? But I think it is about a collective voice about saying what we want and sort of don't want. And if that voice becomes bigger about what we don't want, and then the business model suffers, then the shareholders will start saying, well, we need to serve what people want. And part of the problem with that is the kind of conversation that we're having now isn't something that the average person will have. And I, and I include myself first and foremost in that. And why I wanted to interview is, it's very hard to understand these systems and processes if you've never done an MA, you know, like you have an MA in internet equalities, but thank God you have, because the one thing that I'm so passionate about is I, I know these incredible women. So just last week, I spoke to a political gender expert, you know, she's done an MA in gender studies around, around politics. There's these sort of new breed of jobs that are emerging mm. and the and the people who are dedicating their academic time you know MAs and PhDs to saying I really need to study this and I hope that organizations will 
embrace learning from the unusual suspects more, especially from women. I think the Web Foundation, whatever happens, it's been a really good example of a very rigorous process that has a feminist focus in it. And I think you should be really proud of that. Before we kind of go, a couple more questions. So I've known you for a few years now. So listeners to this podcast might feel that this feels like a bit more of a personal conversation than I have had with other people. And I've felt your journey, I think is a good way to describe it. And I feel really proud of you. Like I just feel really proud of you. And one of the things that I think I know is so hard is when you are trying to like forge a new way forward is sticking with it. And I'd like to just ask you, what has it been like leading such a disruptive business? What have been your challenges and how have you overcome them? Oh, thank you so much, Carla. I mean, I really, really appreciate those words. Sort of making me want to cry on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You won't be the first one on this podcast, so don't worry. Um, Yeah, I mean, okay. So, well, the first thing I would say is, this is a very challenging space for sure. Sometimes it feels like you're apprehending something completely insurmountable. And sometimes it's very wearying because it can feel sometimes like no matter what you do, it's never enough. Like for example, with what I was saying about the Web Foundation work is that you know that whilst you've made huge progress, you've barely scratched the surface when it comes to the deep-seated underpinning structures of injustice that lead to the problems you're trying to tackle. So that's definitely a thing. But I would say the way I've managed that really is through community. It is through all of the incredible members of Feminist Internet that really buoy each other up, especially when we're facing some kind of crisis or adversity or some kind of attack online or something like that. We always really pull together. We support each other. And then, of course, a broader network, the warrior women, other groups I'm in. When you know those people are out there, when you know they're backing you, that does really help kind of soften the blow when you're feeling really dejected or you're feeling like you haven't got the energy for it anymore. Um, So I really appreciate having access to these spaces and what you've done has created a way to make it less likely that people will, you know, give up the good fight. So I think that's the thing. In terms of challenges, I never set out to set up a company. Feminist Internet was meant to be a 10 day experiment in a university and it's morphed into what it is because Mm. there was momentum behind it. The people that came to the initial 10 days didn't want it to end. I didn't want it to end. And it's been such an organic growth. And when I really am honest and look at myself and think, do I want to take it into a business space where we came from a very experimental art and design university perspective? And also, of course, we're a collective so there's lots of questions about directorship and leadership and things to consider as well so you know it's really challenging but I'm just trying to kind of stay cool (laughs) (laughs) so I mean if anyone's listening and I'm sure we'll have some really innovative people listening if anybody wants to reach out to Charlotte and just share any any ways that they're working or getting more comfortable with that or the opposite view which is you know, watch out for these dangers around that, then I'm sure you'd love to hear from them. I've asked this to every single one of our guests, which other women should we be following in your space and supporting the work of? Yeah, so in in the space of online 
abuse. Definitely Shay Yakawowo, who's the founder and CEO of Glitch. They're an amazing charity that fights online abuse. Asmina Drodia, Senior Policy Manager at the Web Foundation, incredible woman. She wrote the toxic Twitter report for Amnesty a few years back and led on the work that I was involved in. And Hera Hussein, she's also an amazing woman. She's the founder of an organization called Chain. And it's a global volunteer network that address gender-based violence. And then if people are interested in thinking about AI differently, I would suggest just listen to the Radical AI podcast. You'll find loads of amazing people through that. Follow the Algorithmic Justice League. And then if you want a more kind of artistic edge approach, I would really recommend checking out Dr. Irene Fubara-Manuel. She's a really interesting artist. She looks at sort of action research that tries to decolonize and create anti-racist alternatives to migration algorithms. Wow. Gosh. And people don't agree that women can change the world. (laughs) Right. Thank you so much. How can people find and engage with you after this podcast? Feminist Internet is on Twitter and Instagram. You can um, follow me on Twitter at otheragent. Or you can in- email me at charlotte at feministinternet.com. Thank you so much for being here today. And I hope we can continue to support you as a network and the really important work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Carla. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Carla Morales Lee, and you've been listening to the Warrior Women podcast, which was produced by the amazing women at Birdline Media. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please click subscribe, as the final episode in this series is with Yvonne Lawson, MBE. Following the tragic death of her son to knife crime, she has become determined to help keep young people safe. This is our first series, so if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate you rating, reviewing, subscribing and sharing it. The Warrior Women Network is a global network of pioneering intersectional women. The best companies in the world are transforming the way they work to be better for people and planet. We offer ways for organisations to learn how to be a force for change from the women already leading it. If you'd like to know more, go to warriorwomennetwork.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening.